This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The premier and her government apparently are trying to shut down a lawsuit that challenges her plan to privatize Hydro One. Uh, This ties in nicely with the story that we've been carrying, of course, for the last uh, number of months now about the outrageously high uh, hydro rates that rural hydro users are hoping to get some relief from these days. Uh, What's to the lawsuit? Is it going to be effective? Uh, Is it even legal? And uh, what's the government doing with maintaining their insistence that actually selling off Hydro One is going to be a good thing for us? Let's bring Tom Adams into the conversation, independent energy and environmental consultant. And uh, he joins us right now on the Bill Kelly Show here at 900 CHML. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Well, a couple of things we can talk about here. Uh, relief for the, uh, the rural residents. As a matter of fact, I'd like to broaden that discussion to relief for every Ontario resident about their hydro rates. But let's let's talk about this lawsuit first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the obvious question is uh, this is being brought about. It's by QP, but uh, and people might be dismissive of that and saying, "Well, yeah, but that's uh, that's QP, that's uh, NDP, and these guys are just traditionally uh, against any kind of privatization." But uh, there's, I think a lot of people are under the impression right now there's a lot of substance to what these guys are talking about. Well, Cuba's got a track record on this. Um, uh, back in uh, 2002, they bought, uh, brought a, uh, a legal complaint uh, uh, against the then uh, conservative government that was uh, uh, planning a sale of Hydro One. Um, uh, and the the argument they presented at the time was that um, uh, the government had promised not to privatize and then had flip-flopped um, and changed their minds. And, uh, and the argument that's presented uh, this time is that the government had promised not to privatize and flip-flopped and changed their minds. It's just... Uh, it's like deja vu all over again, isn't it? <laughs> It's a repeat of, of history. Um, uh, initially, you know, back in 2002, um, uh, I think a lot of people thought it was a long shot, um, and, but they, they managed to pull off, uh, you know, very substantial legal victory. Now, the, uh, the, the, the backing for that lawsuit at the time um, uh, was a broader group of unions than it is this time, um, but still, the, I mean, the 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 QP group doing this has substantial firepower. Well, and and they ask one basic question among others. I mean, this is you know it's a legal battle, so there's there's all kinds of where to fours and this there and all that sort of stuff. But the question I think that needs to be asked and answered here is uh, please, again, uh, Ontario government, show us the net benefit to taxpayers and to ratepayers, why this is such a good thing. And because the government has not very well, has not articulated that at all. As a matter of fact, I haven't seen anything of any substance that's going to make me feel warm and fuzzy about this. Well, I mean, the, the only reply that the government has is um, is to wave their this claim around that, that they're uh, going to take four billion dollars out of the sale and spend it on, um, uh, you know, other government initiatives. Um, uh, that that claim has always been suspect in my mind. I mean, the the, the fundamentals of Ontario's uh, power system finance are that our power system is loaded up to the gills um, with billions and billions of of hidden debts mostly in the form of long-term um, 
uh, power purchase contracts that extend our obligations out 20 years into the future uh, uh, for vastly inflated costs. It, well, so we've got these obligations. There's 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 no extra money in the system. Um, you know, the, what governments have been sweeping under the rug of Ontario's power system for, yay, these many years has not been a pot of gold. Uh, so any of these uh, kind of financial engineering uh, uh, tricks that they're using to claim that there's a windfall from the sale of Hydro One um, uh, seems to me to be a, a, a directly contradictory to the way that the government's keeping its accounts for others of its electricity liabilities, particularly OPG, Ontario Power Generation. So, uh, really, I, I think this, this, this claim that there's a windfall of $4 billion there um, uh, that the government can abscond with without causing any harm to ratepayers, I, I just don't buy it. Well, the other element to this, too, is, is, and again, we can get bogged down in math here, but I, I'm skeptical about this, Tom. Even if the government does come through and say, hey, every penny of that $4 billion is going to go to municipalities for infrastructure, even if they do that, and I'm skeptical about that, but if that were to happen, I, I still can't understand how you can weigh that against the possible dividends. In other words, the other revenue that would be generated to the government if they just hang on to the utility. And I'm not so sure that that's a, a win-win situation. As a matter of fact, my guess is they probably would make more money in the long term if they just held on to it. Oh, that's what the financial accountability officer has determined. Well, there you go. You know, I um, looked at it carefully. Um, uh, I looked at his report. It looks pretty solid. Um, uh, and, you know, he points out that uh, over time, the, the expected dividend stream from Hydro One far outweighs the $4 billion that they plan to cash in. Um, so this, is, this really uh, uh, looks like nothing more than simply, you know, burning the furniture to keep the house warm. Well, it, well, exactly, and and I guess you know, there's they're looking at this from the political standpoint. And I started off our conversation by saying I don't understand where the benefit is. I see where the benefit is to the government, uh, you know, because they they're going to come back and look like the good guys because they can go in to Hamilton or to Toronto or to someplace else and say, here's your check, boys. You know, go build, fix some roads now, that, and they can do that right now with some of this money. But is it, 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 I don't see that it's in the long-term interest of Ontario taxpayers, and especially, well, all of us, I guess, use hydro in one way, shape, or form, including some of these businesses that, uh, that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, and they're the ones that are clamoring right now and saying this is just not tenable anymore. Well, all of that's, you know, these are important public policy questions. And there is a, um, you know, there's a political debate about what to do with, with Hydro One. And, and some of that political debate probably doesn't have room inside the court system or shouldn't have room inside the court system. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, so, I mean, the, the substance of some of these questions of whether the province is better off um, uh, w- uh, with or without the sale of Hydro One may not get standing. But it, it, it does seem, um, uh, you know, very, if history is any guide, um, this uh, QP lawsuit could uh, prove to be a, a major, uh, um, you know, uh, wrench in the works for the uh, provincial government's plans. Well, re- refresh my memory, Tom. When when the Conservative government, when the Harris government tried to do this, and you mentioned, and, and at that time, uh, a conglomeration of other unions besides QP, I mean, they were involved in it, but others, as you mentioned, 
uh, brought a lawsuit against them. Uh, I, I don't know, was there a court decision that actually made them stop, or I thought it was public pressure? Which was it? No, it, it, there was a court decision. Okay. Um, uh, and the, the, the government uh, um, uh, quickly passed a law following the court decision that uh, eliminated the, the grounds of the, of the complaint. So that they, they kind of re-empowered themselves uh, uh, to proceed with the sale. But by that point, the, the sale had, had taken on so much baggage politically that um, it, it, although the, the the law had been passed, the um, uh, th- at that time the stricken conservative government under Ernie Eves was unable to um, uh, kind of re- reestablish its initiative with the sale of Hydro One, um, and I- instead the Eves government's attention turned to. Uh, uh, freezing electricity costs, which turned into another whole-scale disaster. Um, uh, that happened later in the same year. So it, 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 the, the, the loss of the lawsuit back in the day, uh, you know, this is, we're talking about 2002, was a material factor in, in the, the, the collapse of the Ernie Eves government. Yeah, I, I remember freezing the hydro rates and what a debacle that turned out to be, uh, because all they did, of course, was add to the hydro debt, which uh, you know is <laughs> a, a mammoth thing that we're still dealing with here. But but there you go again, uh, Tom. I mean, well, there goes the government again. Uh, what Eves did, obviously, first of all, was political suicide because they ended up losing the election not too many months after that. But but again, it's it's trying to do something to make the government look good without presenting any kind of a business case at all that there's any net benefit to taxpayers, and taxpayers will revolt when they see things like that. Yeah, well, you know, Mr. McGinty used a similar um, uh, electoral promise in uh, that he announced in 2010. It had effect in 2011 of. Um, subsidizing electricity costs. It wasn't quite like the Ernie Eves rate freeze, not quite as damaging, but it was a, it was a terrible um, uh, financial mistake. It was called the Ontario Clean Energy Benefit. Um, and and it, it, so it was, a, uh, it was an electoral success for McGinty when he, when he tried it. Um, uh, you know, so, you know, who knows where the politics of energy might carry us. Well, therein lies the problem, though. And listen, I'm sympathetic and, uh, you know, to, to rural payers because I know what the rates are like, and I've seen some of these outlandish bills. And we, we had the folks on from Global News, of course, uh, Mike Drolet and, and others that have covered the story for many, many year, months now. But the question is, you know, on one hand, you've got people that are saying, well, the government's going to have to step in and subsidize the rates because we simply can't afford it. But, you know, the rest of us have to ask, and I think legitimately so, where's the money going to come from? And and what about relief for everybody? I understand that this is especially hard for them. But, you know, we've got businesses now that are talking out loud about leaving here because they can't afford hydro. Uh, you know, this is this is great to see the way the Ontario economy is starting to rebound. But, you know, we don't want to start seeing companies that pack up and leave now because they say we can't afford the electricity costs. Uh, and we're, we're moving towards that area right now. I mean, the government has to do something, but simply subsidizing it, as Ernie Eves' government proved, is not the answer. Well, um, uh, this, this, this whole issue of uh, rural power rates, um, you, you know, has, has grown to become, you know, a very significant issue. Um, uh, customers in rural Ontario pay much higher uh, delivery rates. Now, 
um, what people may not uh, 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 appreciate is that for a long time, this is like going back generations, um, uh, there been there was always a small subsidy that um, uh, transferred money from uh, urban Ontario uh, power consumers to help to mitigate the extra cost of rural distribution. Um, uh, but just in the last uh, two years, that amount, um, uh, which used to be you know fairly small potatoes, has uh, dramatically increased. So now um, the cost is basically tripled, almost tripled uh, in the last couple of years. Um, uh, now the cost per household is a, an extra 29 bucks a year uh, on power bills that um, our urban customers pay for a combination of subsidy for um, uh, low-density rural delivery and also um, a, a, a low-income energy support program. Um, so the, the costs have gone up, and it, it, but it's not just household customers that are paying these uh, hidden tax to uh, uh, for for rural and low income um, uh, subsidization. This has also been added to the bills of commercial and industrial customers, and and you you know I mean we we've really got a, a puzzle on our hands here. Um, uh, rising electricity costs can only be managed to a very limited extent by simply shuffling the costs between different classes of customers. Um, and, and I'm very concerned about loading up commercial and industrial customers with what are basically tax costs. These, these are costs that are properly recovered through the, through the general revenue fund, not as a special electricity charge. If you happen to be running an electricity-intensive business, you're making car parts or something like that. You're trying to compete against somebody in Indiana who's got industrial power costs that are half what you're paying. And now you're paying an extra tax in order to cover the government's vulnerability on um, uh, the, the cost of rural delivery and low-income energy support. Man, you, I mean, if, if we can't keep people employed then, you know, where does that get us? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, there is a controversy brewing between Fox News and the Kremlin, and it all has to do with an interview that uh, Bill O'Reilly from Fox News did with President Trump, in which uh, O'Reilly claimed that uh, Vladimir Putin was a killer. Uh, Donald Trump didn't disagree with it, uh, but said, hey, we got lots of killers in the United States, too. Why are they so different? Uh, yeah, I know. The answers become more and more incredulous. What does this do to relations, and what's going on between the uh, the Kremlin and uh, the new administration? Well, let's bring Salem, Simon Palomar into the conversation. Simon, of course, research assistant for the Center for International Governance Innovation, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Simon. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm well, Bill. How are you? I'm well. I'm, I'm well. I'm well. Uh, 
uh, amazed uh, with the, some of the comments coming from the, the Trump administration and some of the comments that are coming from the Kremlin these last couple of days. Um, th- where there's smoke, there's fire here. Now, we, we need to, I guess, first of all, Simon, uh, indicate that, look, this is not an, uh, uh, a controversy between the Kremlin and the Trump administration. These guys seem to be buddy-buddy. This is uh, really between the Kremlin and Fox News, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to even describe it if it, to determine right now. Is it even a controversy? I mean, something to remember with uh, the Kremlin, and particularly Kremlin spokesman um, Dmitry Peskov, is that you know he's very good at his job, and he's very good at at uh, essentially you know throwing up uh, throwing up decoys at, at uh, distracting from from serious issues when, for example, reporters ask tough questions about the Kremlin. And this is very much classic Peskov in that he takes the an offhand remark by uh, a conservative pundit and turns it into a bit of a news story. And in, in, I think in many ways it's probably, you know, it's typical Peskov. It's very, very fawning, refers to, uh, you know, Fox TV as, you know, a very respected TV company and therefore a, a, an apology from them is very important and would, you know, would hurt, would, would soothe Russia's hurt feelings. But um, it's, it's not clear to what extent. I mean, let's, let's be serious here. Are the Russians particularly offended by this? Is the Kremlin particularly offended by this? Not at all. But it does give them, you know, additional, it gives them a diff, uh, like an additional storyline in this narrative they have about being victimized by uh, a cabal of people in the United States that really relations between Russia and the United States could be wonderful if it weren't for just a few, you know, stick-in-the-mud Democrats, Republicans who still think it's the Cold War. And this is sort of, I think, a, a useful way to try to, you know, again, throw shade on opponents of Russia in the United States and, you know, speak rather, continue to speak warmly about the new president. And I thought the same thing, Simon, as I saw this story, you know, the old phrase of, hey, let's change the channel here. Because, you know, if you want to put this into the perspective, and you just, I think, did so eloquently, uh, five days ago, we were talking about the, uh, the alleged uh, buildup of military presence uh, in Ukraine. And, and of course, the, yeah. the Russians aren't there per se, but, I mean, they're helping the, the rebels in that uh, area right now. And they've been wrapping that up over the last little while, and that was causing a great deal of concern. Now, all of a sudden, the Kremlin comes out and says, no, 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 we're, we're concerned about this thing over at Fox News. D- don't even ask us about that anymore. Uh, it's it's a, a classic example of how uh, you know, press secretaries or spokespeople in situations like that can attempt to, to change the narrative in, in, instead of what we probably should be talking about. Yeah, and I think that's correct. Um, for a while here, uh, we've been sort of suspecting that uh, the Russian government is going to test Donald Trump on foreign policy fairly early. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, your listeners are all, by this point, familiar with the controversy about uh, what appears to be efforts by the Russian intelligence services to influence the election, whether it was to embarrass Hillary Clinton or to directly support Donald Trump. Um, whether what their goal was when they started out, it looks like they ended up deciding to to try to support Trump as much as possible, to do as much damage to um, the incoming U.S. government as they could. And that was maybe phase one of the test. The next one was this fighting you're talking about in Ukraine. This actually began 
just after the election, we saw renewed fighting in a, in a few places along the ceasefire line. And then this past week, it's even picked up more and gotten probably it's the most intense fighting in since the conflict broke out. So we have to go back to the summer of really 2014 to find, you know, comparable uh, levels of, uh, you know, firepower being exchanged along the ceasefire line. And at the same time, you know, while Donald Trump has been considerably more quiet about Russia ever since his, you know, press conference where he you know, famously declared that, you know, if, if Vladimir Putin likes me, that's a good thing. Don't worry about it. He's been quite quiet about Russia and what his Russia policy would be. And in fact, we seem to, you know, very slowly, Donald Trump has been embracing what's essentially Barack Obama's Russia policy. His new ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, uh, spoke very forcefully against um, what looked like violations of the Minsk agreement in Ukraine, said we're going to stick with sanctions. You know, there was a small adjustment to one sanction against the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service the other week, but it's a very minor one, and that really just allows American businesses to, to do uh, legitimate business that's already authorized by these sanctions a little bit easier. And it looks like, on the one hand, the Trump administration is saying, you know, we're going to actually, Barack Obama, for all the the uh, for all the criticism we've had of him, policy on Russia seemed to be pretty sound. They're slowly moving that way, but they're doing it very quietly, and particularly quietly for this administration, which lets them tend to telegraph everything they're doing. Um, so this might be, you know, an effort again. I mean, the Russians see this, they might be a little bit disappointed. Maybe they thought this guy would be a bit more pliable or that um, all his talk about, you know, maybe Russia and the United States can get along. You know, this is, I think, very much an effort to, you know, reignite that in earlier controversy and maybe not go after the president, but go after those hardliners since it does look like, you know, if the if the Russians did engage in a gambit to try to get this new administration to change U.S. policy towards them, at least it's failing right now. I'm not saying the gambit has failed entirely, but right now it doesn't look good for but, Russia. But, but, you know, the, the mixed messages coming out of the White House are, are, are troubling an awful lot of people, though, Simon. Uh, you know, you've got, for instance, uh, that, that flurry of phone calls that Trump made last week, you know, where he, where he threatened Mexico with military action if they don't get their crime problem under control. Uh, he had the, the, the heated conversation with the Prime Minister of Australia where he hung up on them uh, and, and making threats like that. Yet he seems to give Russia a pass because clearly, if in fact, you know, the president is actually getting these uh, security briefings, he's got to be aware of the fact of what's happening in Ukraine and Crimea right now, yet he doesn't seem to care about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's, I mean, certainly true. I and mean, if you look at the, he, if you look at the interactions that Trump has with a lot of foreign leaders, you know, we'll bring up Mexico, has had, you know, direct conversations with President Peña Nieto, um, was supposed to have a meeting, a face-to-face meeting with him. And, of course, he, he campaigned very heavily on, on whether it's the, the, the border wall, renegotiating NAFTA, rounding up uh, Mexican immigrants and deporting them. I mean, uh, this was really a, a pillar of his, you know, campaign promises was changing the relationship with Mexico. So he seems to have taken a more hands-on, hands-on approach there, and uh, he's probably able to take a hands-on approach because you know relations between Mexico and the United States, despite what Donald Trump says, I mean, are generally pretty good. Mm-hmm. There are a few things here and there that there are disagreements about, but they're generally pretty good. Likewise, you know, relations between Australia 
and the United States are actually generally pretty good, so it makes sense that the two leaders would call each other, and then for some reason this really, this minor issue, this minor agreement to take a certain number of refugees, it blows up into something really much bigger than it needs to be. Russia, I would say, is a, is a probably a bit different of a policy issue for Donald Trump. He didn't campaign all that much on Russia. I mean, he said you know, some nice things about Vladimir Putin. He uh, said that he thought he could have a better relationship with Russia. But because of the long-standing adversarial relationship between um, Russia and the United States, there are a lot more people involved in, in making Russia policy. Uh, you know, and that goes from the bureaucracy, people in the Department of Defense, people in the intelligence services, people in the Department of State, uh, people in the Department of the Treasury who have to um, monitor sanctions and make sure they're actually being enforced. So there's, the, there's bureaucrats, but then there's also Congress, right? I mean, uh, guys like John McCain, Lindsey Graham, two Republican senators, fairly senior senators in Congress, you know, have made relations with Russia, you know, a big part of their congressional careers. And whereas we've seen, you know, Republicans being awfully quiet about relations with Mexico or awfully quiet about trade in Congress so far, when you have uh, um, other parts of the government that say, you know, this is also our issue, this is something, you know, in the case of the, the Congress, they can say we actually are you know, co-equal to the president, we have a right to weigh in on this, and then when you get pushed, Trump might be getting pushed from the Department of Defense, you know, his... Uh, his Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, you know, is very skeptical of Russian intentions. And uh, likewise, Rex Tillerson is you know, Secretary of State, who has been you know, confirmed now, whereas he's done business in Russia. He also sounds like he's actually fairly, you know, takes a fairly, has a fairly clear view of what Russian foreign policy looks like, and is probably a little bit perhaps willing to push back. So where he's got an opportunity to really get in there and affect relations in one-on-one. -on -one. Donald Trump does that. But I think on Russia, he might be finding that all his advisors, not all of them necessarily, but a lot of his advisors, a lot of people who work for him, a lot of people in Congress, a lot of people in the bureaucracy are saying, you know, you need to calm down. So you can say one thing about Russia, but we still think the policy that we are, have going on right now is the right one to pursue. And, and therein lies the contradiction, and you're absolutely right, because we've heard some of that. I mean, even Mitch McConnell, who's the the, the top-ranking Republican, of course, in the Senate, I mean, he calls Putin a thug, uh, and, and, and so have others. I mean, this is not just a Democrat versus Republican thing, and I guess we should be careful, actually, about, you know, talking about Trump and, and the Republicans assuming that they're on the same team. Uh, yeah. tr Trump's not a true Republican anyway. He used the party to, to get the nomination and get elected. But uh, a lot of people, both uh, in the Senate and uh, in in the uh, the House right now, are rather skeptical of this guy. And and the rationale for that, Simon, as you've mentioned, is uh, since the days of the Cold War, uh, they're the bad guys. I mean, the Russians are the bad guys, not to be trusted. And uh, it's not. I, it's almost as if everybody else in the country has never seen any, any evidence to change that. Yet all of a sudden, Trump is saying, "No, I, I like this guy. I respect this guy." And and he doesn't seem to to want to, to go face to face with Putin on just about anything, not yet anyway. Which I guess to back to your point begs the question: Well, what's going to happen when they start ramping things up in Ukraine and maybe someplace else as well? How's Trump going to respond then? I, if if I'm in the in Ukraine right now or I'm in Crimea, I'm I'm getting a little nervous because he's already said he doesn't believe in NATO, he doesn't believe in the efficacy of NATO, uh, and and that's basically what these guys are going to rely on. But if the U.S. doesn't come to the table, they're in trouble. Well, I think that's exactly 
that's really exactly where we are right now. I think I, I think you're correct. We're seeing some movement. I mean, for that, you know, Donald Trump, whether he likes it or not, is reconciling himself to the fact that foreign relations are not simply just a matter of how the president gets along with uh, foreign prime ministers or foreign presidents. It's not just a personal relationship that can affect things, can make it a bit better, can make it a bit worse. But there are, you know, bigger, longstanding issues at play than just personalities. So, you know, right now, I'm if I'm kind of trying to predict the future, I think that the situation for NATO looks much better than it did, you know, a couple months ago, since it's becoming clear that, you know, people like Jim Mattis have influence in this in this administration, that they have the ability to at least, you know, tell the president what they think should be done. And, and therein lies, yeah, because we've seen evidence of that, haven't we, Simon? Uh, you know, I mean, even as, as little as a few weeks ago, he's backtracking on building the wall and, and you know, paying, you know, make Mexico pay for it. Now he's suggesting that there's other ways we can make Mexico pay. Uh, even this same interview with Bill O'Reilly the other day, uh, you know, like going to get rid of Obamacare. That's going to be the first thing I do. And now he's saying oh, it could be a year or two before we start to really work on that file, too. So uh, maybe despite what he's saying and despite what he's tweeting, uh, maybe some of the people around him are starting to influence some of these decisions and getting them to soften the stance on some of those issues. Yeah, and I, so I, and I think that's what we're seeing. Now, softening doesn't mean, you know, a change of heart. And it's not, you know, uh, not Saul on the road to Damascus and he's miraculously converted. <laughs> but uh, what we are seeing is, I think, you know, this first couple of weeks, you know, have been rough. The the uh, administration candidate swinging, wanting to get a lot of things done, is it trying to is testing the limits of executive orders and see how much they can get done without Congress. Um, and they're finding, okay, there are limits to this, and that you know they're going to have to work with Congress, and that they're going to have to delegate. I think they're coming to the conclusion that some issues are going to have to be delegated, and that the whole the whole government cannot be micromanaged out of the White House. It's not neither practical nor is it necessarily legal. So I don't think everybody should be, uh, this isn't maybe the great moderation that uh, I think a lot of pundits were predicting during the election, that, oh, you know, once he gets into power, he's going to calm down, he's going to realize how tough this is. I think, you know, he's still got that fighting spirit. He's still picking fights on Twitter, and the the leaks and the reports coming out of the White House say that it's still... You know, they're still in very much in a, in a campaign mindset, that they want to get things done, that they've got opponents, that they want to shake things up, and that they can still act like outsiders, even though they're now in the White House. But I think that on, you know, big, big policy issues where there's a long-standing consensus, you know, amongst Republicans, amongst Democrats, amongst career professionals in the civil service, that, you know, there are some countries in the world where the United States and their interests are just very hard, very hard to agree on that we need a certain type of policy there. We still, I think, will see some push towards, you know, warming relations with Russia. I think that a lot of NATO employees and NATO capitals are probably still apprehensive. But compared to, I think, a couple months ago, this last week, has shown some progress towards embracing that that U.S. Uh, policy on Russia, 
And I think this blow up between Fox News and the Kremlin, of all things, I mean, I guess it is indicative of that, that, you know, they're no longer necessarily going to be trying to appeal directly to the president of the United States, but instead they're going to perhaps attempt to discredit other critics of the Kremlin in the United States. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Had to stay in hospital recently. Uh, maybe a loved one, you had to go visit somebody. What was it like? What was the experience like? Uh, staffing is an issue. And let's connect the dots here. Let, you know the story we talked about late last week, of course, about the uh, uh, individual, the uh, Hamilton man, who was actually assaulted while uh, in a long-term care facility uh, by a dementia patient. Nonetheless, the injuries are still severe, of course. Staffing has become a problem. And here in Ontario, we've got some problems that are, well, unique to Ontario uh, when it comes to the number of hospital beds, long-term care facilities, and everything else. Well, to that end, there is a rally going on later on today, noon today, at Hamilton General Hospital in downtown. And, uh, well, I want to give you the details about this, but I want to bring Michael Hurley into the conversation. Michael, of course, is the president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about this. Morning, Michael. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. It's a long laundry list of things that we need to talk about here when it comes to health care in this province, but it really comes down to funding, doesn't it? Yes, we've had about eight years of um, budget cuts in real terms in Ontario hospitals, and uh, and uh, the... Uh, we well, had more than that if you want to go back to the Harris days. Uh, yes, yes, those are very dramatic cuts as well. And uh, so the hospitals have lost about... 25% of their budgets in real terms in that in that eight-year period cut a lot of beds. And at the same time, the population in communities like Hamilton and Niagara has, has uh, grown and aged and um, as a result, you know, is requiring uh, more hospital access. And, of course, um, we have diminished capacity, right? Listen, here's the thing that I, I find most troubling, and there's a lot of stuff that I find troubling about our healthcare system right now, especially here in Ontario, and we'll get into some of those numbers in a second. But anytime you talk to anybody who's running for public office here, and, and this is going back quite a few years now, Michael, the, they, they say, you know what, you're right, we don't have enough long-term care beds, we don't have enough this stuff, so as a result, all the pressure is on primary care, in other words, on hospitals, to accommodate just about all of our health care needs, which is totally wrong and totally unfair and totally underfunded. But here we are in 2017 talking about the same thing. I feel like this is Groundhog Day, you know, the little Bill Murray movie, Michael, because we keep talking about it over and over again, and it doesn't seem to be getting fixed. No, it doesn't. And, you know, I mean, really, uh, all three political parties are uh, pretty much on the same page around funding for hospitals and long-term care, I, I don't see a huge difference there. And, um, you know, nobody is actually uh, stepping up to defend uh, uh, those systems or the people that require care in them, uh, from what I can see. You know. Well, the incident that we had last week in Hamilton, and I know you've certainly read about that, about the man that was assaulted at St. Joseph's Villa in Dundas. Uh, I know there's an investigation that's ongoing, but that's not a unique case, and it happens too often in too many places, Michael, right across the province, and it really comes down to to staffing levels, I would think. Yes, I mean, uh, it's it's really uh, tragic that, you know, there are a number of people murdered in long-term care in Ontario, uh, you know, in, uh, in each year, and uh, there are a significant number of residents who are or badly beaten. And I mean, the reality is that long-term care facilities have become 
the complex continuing care facilities of yesterday, like the St. Peter's, etc. Um, that's what these facilities have become, but they've had no increase in staffing. And um, the acuity levels of these patients and their needs are dramatically uh, increased over what they were. So you've got a threadbare staff. That assault, as I understand it, happened at night. You know, you've got a, you've got the, the, the thinnest possible staff. In fact, we should all be worried about what would happen if there were ever a fire in a facility like that. But you've got almost no people on staff in the first place, and you've got patients who are, or residents rather, who are, uh, you know, um, suffering from conditions that, that make them volatile and violent. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's a horrible, that's a horrible case. And unfortunately, that happens uh, often. This is not a political thing. I mean, I understand that, you you know, some people are going to look at this and they're going to say, well, you know, boy, you get the liberals out of here. But, I mean, you know, a pox on all their houses, Michael, because, like I say, nobody seems to be wanting the moving the art sticks here. I mean, you know, even the Ontario Financial Accountability Office has done some work on this. Uh, we were just talking about hydro rates before you joined us here on the program, but let's switch that that office over to the healthcare portfolio now. And even they say it doesn't matter who's in office in Queens Park. Even they say that they at least a five percent increase is is needed annually to try to, and that's just to to catch up with what needs to be done here, let alone to make it a better system. And we did a poll of, uh, of people in Hamilton. Um, uh, two weeks ago, and uh, about 90% of them said they would support a 5% increase. But of course, getting the three political parties to a 5% increase is uh, is our challenge. And I fully agree with you. They all, all three parties, need to be uh, need to be pushed. I, I believe their you know their health policies are actually you know uh, um, you know uh, you know quite similar on the funding front. So uh, we we do need to give them a push, and that's why we're having the rally today is to is to give them a push. Well, sure, because any time you stop five people on the street right now, and, you know, when you get into town, just, you know, go down to King and James or wherever on your way down to the general and say, what's the number one priority for you? They all say health care, and, and justifiably so, because, you know, whether it's us or uh, whether it's our loved ones or our, our, our parents, you know, who, who have to go into a, a retirement living or whatever the case might be, you know, the, the facts are, Michael, and we all know this, as we get older, we get more sick. I mean, we're more prone to injuries. Uh, the hip replacements, knee replacements, any number of things, cancers, and a number of those. Healthcare costs are on the increase right now. We're not we're not even playing catch up at this stage. No, and we've got you know we we spend the least of any of the provinces, or you know, in fact, of, uh, you know, about three hundred and twenty five dollars less per citizen than any other province does on acute care, and we spend you know the lowest also on long term care. And we have the fewest number of beds for both hospitals and long-term care to population. And you feel it in communities like this, especially when the hospitals are feeling a surge uh, from from something like flu. You've got hospitals which are operating at uh, well over 100%. And you've got uh, uh, all sorts of access problems for people who have a real need to be uh, accommodated into hospital to have their their medical conditions dealt with, but but can't get in. And and in my experience, Bill, you know, they uh, the 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 people that this falls on the hardest, the people hardest hit by the diminished capacity are the elderly, because the way the system copes with not having enough resources is it says essentially, well, you've had a good life, and there's no room for you, or uh, you know you're holding down precious healthcare resources with your illness, and we need your bed for somebody else. And it's, you know, these are people who built this country and deserve 
a whole lot better treatment, often the very first and only time they ever get sick seriously in their lives and they come to hospital for help. You know, I think they I think they deserve to be welcomed, not not treated as though they're hogging inappropriately healthcare resources which should be given, you know, to somebody who's more more in need than they are, which is all too often what happens. We still, I think some people in this province, Michael, are living under the misguided impression that, that we have one of the best health care systems in the world. Uh, I, that might have been the case at one time back, you know, when, when, when Medicare was first adopted back in the 1960s because it was properly funded. But in those days, of course, the federal government funded 50 percent of the cost. Uh, right now, I think the percentage that they pay is something about 18 to 19 percent. I mean, it's some ridiculously low amount like this. But so, I mean, we have been let down by government after government after government here. They keep, you know, tightening this and turning the tap off when it comes to health care funding. Uh, you got to wonder at what point we, the citizens, are going to start to say, hey, wait a second here. This is our number one priority. Why aren't you looking after it? Well, I'm glad you raised the federal transfers because, it, you know, I think people would be stunned to know that the Trudeau government is actually offering the provinces less in the health transfer than the Harper government did, substantially less. Um, and so, uh, you know, the uh, the federal share will likely drop as a percentage of, uh, of uh, provincial expenditures. And so I think there also needs to be, as you're, I think, suggesting some pressure on the federal government, which... Uh, led people to believe in the last federal election that they would be a champion for a, a national Medicare system. But in fact, their funding, you know, when they're offering 3.1% in the real costs, according to the Financial Accountability Office, or like 5.3%, as you mentioned, Bill, um, that, you know, that that shortfall is is enormous. And, uh, and they should also be stepping up. It is a national responsibility. It's a national program, right? Well, absolutely, but the problem is, is and, and the strategy that the federal government has employed here is to pick them off one at a time because they've uh, they, you know, they've cut separate deals with different provinces right now, but, and and they do this by throwing, as you mentioned, the the money may be less. There's there's less in the kitty at this stage, Michael, but they'll throw a few incentives into this province into that province to get them to sign off on it, uh, and then basically put the pressure on the other provinces like Ontario to, to follow suit. Uh, I mean, if there's one thing you can give Kathleen Wynne a little bit of credit for here, she has not signed off on this vet because it's not a good deal for Ontario, and that means not a good deal for you and me. No, you're absolutely right, and you know, kudos to the uh, to the provinces. By the way, represent 88 percent of the of the Canadian population who haven't signed, and the ones that have signed. I mean, they've been told that the uh, hundred million or something they're going to get for mental health and addictions um, and home care is off the table unless they sign a bilateral agreement. So there's a bit of blackmail going on by the federal government. Um, but no, no, absolutely kudos to the to the province of Ontario for taking a, a firm position around this. Um, where they could be showing more leadership, though, is in their own willingness to fund their health care systems. And in that respect, um, you know, we have we have some criticisms of them. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, you're right. They're using that as a rationalization to say, well, we'd love to give you guys more, but we can't because we're not getting enough from Ottawa. Uh, that may well be the case, but it's a matter of redirecting the priorities uh, here at home, too. You know, and you've looked around, Michael, and we've talked with experts from the healthcare field that that, that have a much broader perspective on this. And you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago about how the, the the system here in Canada is 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 hurting right now, and it's underfunded certainly. And you look to places like Scandinavia that have, frankly, a much better healthcare system, one of the best healthcare systems in the world. And yes, it does cost more. And yes, they do pay more in taxes to fund that healthcare system. But they also understand that they're getting a better system because of it. I mean, there's there's a, a certain element here that we as taxpayers have to understand too. 
is you can't keep going back to the government and saying, reduce my taxes, reduce my taxes, but give me more. At some point, we have to accept some responsibility for this as well. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd make two comments. I mean, one is one is that, you know, the, the health care system faces some um, short-term pressures, like as the baby boom generation ages and as it presents itself for for care, you know, it's a it's a it's, it's a large population boom that's going to have to be accommodated in the healthcare system, just like it was accommodated in the education system. But after that, after that uh, cohort, that age cohort, you know, starts to um, start to subside, the, the cost pressures on the healthcare system, you know, are 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 certainly going to are certainly going to diminish. But um, you know, we 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 do underspend significantly on the healthcare system and you know that really means that we pass on the costs of providing the care um, to families really we force people to travel for care uh, we don't pay for for their hotels except uh, unless they're in northern Ontario and it's a meager grant they get you know we don't we don't provide support for that um, the home care system is a bit of a joke and in fact people find it very difficult to access care so a lot of, you know, quite quite elderly women are tasked with providing the care that should be provided in a long-term care facility, in a respite center, in a hospital, uh, because they're told that uh, there's no room, no no uh, no ability to accommodate their loved one. Right. So a lot of these costs just get passed right back um, to individuals. And um, in the province of Ontario. On the fiscal side, I mean, the provincial government made a decision to reduce its level of corporate taxes to the lowest in in uh, North America. No state, no province has a lower level of corporate taxation. And I would argue that, in fact, they reduce corporate taxes too significantly. And if they were to raise them even slightly, they would find uh, some of the room that they need on the fiscal side um, to meet the cost pressures in health. It's it's really it's a numbers game, and I get that. And and I, like I say, it comes back to reprioritizing exactly where the government's going to spend their money. And I'm not necessarily I'm not going to stand up here and advocate and say, hey, you know, you should be taxing us more. I'm saying that if we want a better system, we may have to pay a little bit more for it. But at the same time, you're right. The government's got a responsibility to start funding what we consider to be the priorities right now. And uh, and therein lies the uh, the reason for the rally. So it's noon today at the general, correct? You get people from all over the the province coming in here, don't you? Yes, we got people from Sudbury coming. Got people from Ottawa coming. We got Cornwall and, and Kingston and uh, and Guelph and Stratford and Toronto and yeah, no, we've got uh, Bracebridge is coming. Gravenhurst is coming. We got like a yeah, uh, a really a really large contingent uh, from all across uh, driving distance. Some people will be on the buses uh, here and here and back for about fifteen hours today to get here. Yeah, yeah. Good, yep. good, good show, and a strong showing from Halton and from Burlington and from uh, Georgetown and, uh, of course, from uh, from Hamilton. One of the things, I guess, that, that we need to overcome here is a lot of folks, I guess, don't pay a whole lot of attention to something like this until they actually have to access health care, Michael. You know, it's it's not front of mind all the time. I mean, you know, you can drive past a hospital, you know, a hundred times on your way to and from work, and, and that one day, though, you or somebody you love has to go inside that hospital, and you start to see the, the the, the level of care that's there. And I mean, kudos to the people that work there. I mean, the, the, the stuff that they can do and the wonderful work that they do in those hospitals uh, with very few resources and, and, and diminishing resources, too, is just ridiculous. Uh, and, and we need to give them an awful lot of credit. I mean, they're, they're the heroes that, that get this thing done, the doctors, the nurses. 
uh, the staff inside those hospitals as well. I mean, we, we can't have a discussion about the, the state of our healthcare system without at least acknowledging the work that they do. That's, yeah, well, that's very kind and generous of you, Bill. And, yeah, I, I think uh, your listeners who work in hospitals, long-term care, and community health would be really, uh, really uh, moved by your by by the generosity of your comments, sir. Well, what all, all we're looking for here from the government, and again, whoever is in Queens Park right now, it's the Wynn government, is to say, look, you know what the way the system is supposed to work. You know that there are supposed to be preventative measures in healthcare. We get that, and we have a responsibility. But once you need to access that, we need more hospital beds. We need uh, we need long term care facilities. We need hospice care. I mean, people will be shocked. I mean, we have a fabulous facility here, of course, with the Bob Kemp Hospice here in Hamilton. But up until yeah. a few years ago, provincial government here in Ontario didn't even fund hospices. They still get a little bit of money, but nowhere near the kind of funding that they deserve for the great work that they do, too. So this is this is a, a, an ideal situation today at, at the General Hospital during this rally to simply bring attention to this. It's going to be public pressure that's going to change this, you would think. That's, and that's this, uh, I guess, is really, uh, I guess, one of a series of, uh, of, of uh, meetings and, and uh, gatherings you're going to have right across the province. Is it, Mike? Yes, we have a we have a rally planned in Kenora in April, and one in Sudbury in uh, in June, and we have one in Ottawa in uh, in October. And I and I um, I really uh, I really agree with you, Bill, because I think that um, what the uh, you know what the political parties have to um, I think um, see is some pressure. Um, we've lived through a long period of uh, of a, a logic of austerity and. Uh, you know there was no money and cut 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 and i and i think they've they've um they've absorbed that into their into their political fiber and their political thinking and they need to see that there's public support and uh, god you know the poll that showed that 90% of people in hamilton supported increases uh in the neighborhood of 5% for the hospitals and a and a real funding increase for long term care like that should that should be persuasive uh, to uh, politicians in the Hamilton area that that perhaps they should be getting on board and be champions of uh, of infusing the healthcare system with some resources so we can meet the challenges it's facing. Well, That's my hope. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.